worksheet number 16, if you would, the Bible's longest prophecy. Hopefully it doesn't translate into the world's longest sermon, but we're going to look at the, world, the Bible's longest prophecy. We're going to be turning back to the prophetic books, and before we've, uh, the previous meetings that we've had, we looked at the sanctuary, its structure, and its services, and we noted that all of the things the sanctuary outlined in type either have been or are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ right now. The Lamb, of course, represents Jesus when he came to this earth as a human being to bear our sins, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have lived, that should have died, on the cross. Then that shed blood, of course, was transferred by a priest in the type, and of course Jesus went to heaven to be the priest and took it into the heavenly court where we can't go, but by faith we put our trust in him, and he's our intercessor in the court of God. And then there was that most holy place ministry, that day of atonement experience that was typified in the Old Testament, and I believe Jesus is currently doing now. Now, where do we come up with that in Scripture that Jesus, who was once the lamb, then was the priest, is now acting in the position of a high priest in the most holy place? How do we find that in the Scripture, and is that what the Scripture truly teaches? So that's what we're going to look at tonight in the Bible's longest prophecy. But before we get started, we always need to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have promised to give wisdom where we lack it and knowledge and understanding where we might not have it right now. And Lord, we ask tonight for that promise to be made true in our presence, that you would speak to us clearly from your word and help there not only to be listening, but Lord, help there to be understanding. We want to know you more, so teach us tonight directly from your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, page 1072 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 17, page 1072. Acts 17 in your pew Bible. The first book after the four Gospels, making it the fifth book in the New Testament. Acts 17, verse 31. Now I know when Jesus came, he explained that now is the judgment of this world, but he further explained what he meant. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a judgment of, the, of this world in the sense that its ruler was cast out a second time like he had been in heaven. But over and over, what you find in the scriptures are people who were living and writing after Jesus died on the cross, after Calvary, still looking forward to a day of judgment. Apparently there is a day of judgment, and it's not just back at the cross where Satan was cast out, but forward into the future. Acts chapter 17 Verse 31 is one of those passages. It says here, because he has appointed a day on which he, what's that next word? Will judge the world in righteousness by whom? By the man whom he has ordained, that is Jesus Christ. He has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead, according to this author, is Evidence enough to believe that he has gone to do a work and that that work will include a day of judgment in the future. Okay. Again, very clearly, he has appointed a day in which he will judge. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes now, page 674. We're going to be all over the Bible a little bit at the beginning here, and then we're going to settle down into the book of Daniel. But prelude to that, 
Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, page 647 in your pew Bible. And of course, this is an Old Testament passage, but I want you to see how it works so seamlessly with the New Testament testimony. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, let's go to verse 14. The very last thing it says, well, in fact, let's just go back up to 13. But the very last words of Ecclesiastes 12, after the entire book, says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So everything in the book of Ecclesiastes leads up to these two verses. So these are pretty important verses. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Apparently everything we have to do with the Lord is fear him, that is love the Lord, respect and honor him, and keep his commandments. Which again is replete, ubiquitous in scripture. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is the whole duty of man, very clearly. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For, verse 14, God will bring every work into what? Judgment. Including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it's not just a judgment that this world can conduct where they can see your actions. You know, if you were to go before a judge for doing a crime or something big or small, whatever it is, they have to have some sort of evidence, right? External. They have to have some sort of outward manifestation of your criminal behavior. You had to have been clocked with a radar. They had to actually be caught doing a thing. But there is stuff that's going on on the inside of us that I can't see and no earthly court could judge you on. But apparently God's judgment is deeper than mere externals. Apparently it goes into every secret thing. Again, verse 14, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing that no one else could have possibly seen, whether good or evil. So he looks forward to this future work, and then we go back to the New Testament. New Testament, Romans chapter 2. Page 1086 in your pew Bible, it seems that the Apostle Paul in perfect harmony with the author of Ecclesiastes there, looks still forward, and again, this is after Jesus died on the cross, he's still looking forward to this day of judgment that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 2, and verse 16. In the day, whatever he's doing here, talking about, but he goes, concludes his sentence, in the day when God will judge... Again, that's future tense for the judgment even after Christ had died on the cross. In the day when God will judge the what? Secrets of men. By whom? Jesus Christ. According to my gospel. So according to the gospel that Paul preaches, because this is the Paul writing Romans, Paul's gospel was not just what Jesus did on the cross, but also included the judgment Jesus would do in the future. Okay, is that clear? According to my gospel, he says, there is this day coming in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So there is a judgment conducted by God. Jesus Christ will be the conduit, the ex executor of that judgment. It will be in the future and he'll be judging the secret things, right? This harmonizes beautifully with Ecclesiastes. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 22. When Jesus comes again, this is page 1090 in your pew Bible. The very last page of your Bible. 
pretty sure it's 1190, isn't it? Yeah, okay. It's a typo there, but don't worry about it. <laughs> you found it. Go to the very last page of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Look at the verses 11 and 12. Jesus says definitively, Behold, I am coming, how? Quickly, and my reward is what? Now let me just ask you about it. He says, I'm coming quickly, and when I do, my reward will be with me. Has the Lord, when he returns, already determined what the reward will be? Yes. He's, come, he's already bringing the reward. He doesn't say, behold, I'm coming quickly to determine your reward. Apparently, when he returns, he's coming to dole out the reward, the punishment, the whatever, the good or bad thing that you come. And when, we've seen this over and over. Matthew chapter, uh, I believe it's uh, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is speaking of his own return. He says, when the Son of Man comes, he will divide the left from the right, the sheep or the goats. It's already been determined. He says, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his what? Has the Lord already judged our works before he returns to the earth? Yes. So notice the sequence that the gospel seems to point out. That even after Jesus died on the cross, the authors were looking forward to a judgment by Jesus who would bring every secret work into judgment. Okay? So apparently there's a judgment that's occurred after the cross, but happens before he returns. Okay? There's a judgment after the cross, and before he returns. After the cross, it was still future. When he returns, it's all done. So somewhere in the middle, which, by the way, happens to be the time in which we're living, we're somewhere. Are we not somewhere between the first and second coming of Jesus? Now, we, might, we could argue about where along that spectrum we are, and I believe the Bible makes that pretty clear as well. Right? But clearly, we are in this time between the first coming and before the second coming when Jesus is judging the world. Apparently, that's what he's doing. So let's see this played out in prophecy. Let's see if it's actually lined out in that sequence. Daniel chapter 7. Now, we've covered Daniel chapter 7 before. This can be page 864 in your pew Bible. Daniel chapter 7. So we'll just review the highlights, because I know it's been a few nights since we've looked at prophecy, but I want to review this same sequence of events so it's patently clear in your minds. Remember chapter 7 and verse 3. Daniel has this dream and he says, And four great, what? Beasts came up from where? The sea, each different from the other. And of course, skip down to verse 17. What does the interpretation say? Those great beasts, which are four, are for what? Kings, which will arise out of the earth. Okay? So here we have these four great kings, and we understand from Daniel 2 already that we're talking about four consecutive, contiguous kingdoms. Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and what's the fourth one? Rome. Same sequence Daniel 2, same sequence Daniel 7. In fact, let's go through here now and see it step by step in Daniel chapter 7. Because, did, by the way, did Daniel know that there were four kingdoms already before he had been given the vision of Daniel chapter 7. Yeah, Daniel chapter 2 had made that clear, right, with the image, you know, the head of gold, the chest and arms, very clear, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. So that's the basic. But Daniel chapter 7 makes it more explicitly clear. Let's start with verse 4. Remember this now? The first was like a lion, 
It had eagle's wings. I watched those wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Very clear, that's a representation of Babylon. Now we go to verse 5, and we're going to just break it down verse by verse. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So the kingdom immediately after Babylon was Medo-Persia. Now we go to verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This, again, is a reference, as it was in Daniel chapter 2, to Greece. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Now let's go to verse 7. The fourth beast. Now, before we get there, let's remember what we saw in Daniel 2. Daniel 2 had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, but Rome had two phases, two stages of existence, right? First, it was just the legs of iron, one single thing, one single material. But then, towards the feet and toes, it does what? Divides and is mixed between iron and clay, right? So you have two phases. You have the imperial Rome, which is one singular entity, and then you have divided Rome that divides politically into ten sections. He already knew about that. We're going to see that reflected in Daniel chapter 7, but we're going to get more detail about the time of the toes, which was, of course, Daniel's big interest anyway. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. There's a direct tie back to Daniel 2. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So he sees it, and then he sees it with ten horns. Verse 8. So all of that, by the way, up to verse 7, is everything he'd learned in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 8 is new information for Daniel chapter 7. I was considering the horns, and there was what? Another horn. It introduces a new character, a new kingdom amongst the other ten. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Okay, so you see Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome, but now you have Rome and now at least three different phases. Imperial Rome, then divided Rome, political Rome, then you have spiritual Rome. Right? This other one, which we're going to see from the interpretation. That's the Antichrist power. Now, what's the next thing he sees in verse 9? I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was, white, was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and this is crucial to see, the what was seated? Court was seated, and the books were opened. This is a scene, a courtroom scene, or a scene of judgment. Okay? Very clear from the chronology, from the sequence, where it happens. Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome imperial, Rome divided, and during the time of the little horn of Rome, then this transpires. This courtroom scene takes place. Okay? Now we go on to verse 11. I watched then, so he's still in chronological sequence, 
divided Rome, little horn, judgment scene in heaven, and the next thing he sees is the little horn doing something else again. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. So there's a judgment in heaven, and then the next thing he sees after that is the little horn again. Okay? So we have the little horn before the judgment, then the judgment, and then a tiny little phase of the little horn spouting off once again that gets his, rests his attention. And then what do we see? goes on. I watched till its body, till the beast was slain. Of course, this is still beast. The only beast that's been mentioned there is Rome. It's just in this fourth and final stage now. And its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. By the way, how is this little horn antichrist power of Rome what destroys it? Burning flame. Leave your finger right there in Daniel chapter 7 and go back to 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians, page 1138. 2 Thessalonians, page 1138. I'm going to go to chapter one, 2, I'm sorry. And notice how this so clearly harmonizes with the Apostle Paul's counsel about the Antichrist power. Again, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Let's start with verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. So again, what is his topic? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day had Christ had come. He's like, we're not living in the time of Jesus coming right now. It has not already happened and is not imminent. Why does he say this so confidently? Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's going to be a great, not just apostasy, but an impostasy. Can we have an impostasy? Someone imposer, an imposter, right? And of course he goes on to explain, verse 5, do you not remember that I was with you was still with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining. This seems to be a reference to imperial Rome, because this is the time that Paul is living in. He's living in the time of Rome, just on the first phase of it, not on that final phase. Okay? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. So apparently, there was a time for this Antichrist power to be revealed. And Paul's saying it's not now. But it's already churning, but there's a time when it will be fully manifest. Okay? So he's looking forward to it. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And notice this in verse 8. And when the lawless one will be revealed, a reference to this little horn antichrist, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with what? Brightness of his coming. How will this little horn power, this Antichrist power, be destroyed, according to the Apostle Paul? By the coming of the Lord. Apparently, it's going to exist. He said it's already in the world now, 
But there's a secular power, there's a civil power restraining its full maturity and development. But when that's removed and it's fully revealed, apparently there's a time for it to be revealed, it will continue until Jesus returns, which is exactly what Daniel shows. Okay. Again, verse 8, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. I wanted to point out how Daniel's chronology of events, starting, you can even start with that fourth empire of imperial Rome, then divided into ten kingdoms Rome, then the other spiritual kingdom, the little horn power would come up, then there would be a judgment in heaven, the little horn would say some stuff one last time, and then be destroyed with fire. Is the exact same sequence that Paul outlines in 2 Thessalonians about the same power because they're talking about the same thing. Of course they harmonize. Of course they make sense together. And of course, the last thing in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And you think, ah, here comes the return of Jesus. Well, not quite. He came to where? To the Ancient of Days. So Jesus comes into this judgment, right? where the king, the ancient of days is opening the books and the court is seated, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a what? Kingdom. Is Jesus going to receive a kingdom after this judgment? Yes. Okay, but the judgment comes first, then comes the kingdom. I want to get this sequence patently clear in your mind. Judgment first, then the kingdom. Then to him was given a kingdom and glory and a a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So patently clear, there is a sequence that concludes with Christ's return and his establishing a kingdom, but who constitutes the citizenship of that kingdom has been determined at the judgment beforehand. Okay, so the judgment comes first, so when he returns to set up the kingdom, he can dole out the rewards with him because it's already been determined. Let's continue on then. In the interpretation, page 865 of Daniel chapter 7, in the interpretation, well, let's just start with verse 23, speaking the interpretation of that fourth beast. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. So he's talking about this fourth beast. And notice he goes right through these phases of it. The ten horns are ten kings which shall arise from this kingdom. So notice you have a time when it's just the kingdom itself. Then you have a time when the ten horns come out. From this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. So you have the kingdom, then the divided into ten horns kingdom, and then the phase of the kingdom with the little horn in it. And shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. And notice it, just like Paul, at a certain point in time, for a time, times, and half a time. But what is the conclusion? After the time, times, and half a time, which we've already studied, began in 538 A.D., 
when the secular power, the civil power of Rome, handed over rule to the religious power of Rome, to the bishop of Rome, to run the Roman Empire in 538 A.D. Until 1798 A.D., when the papacy was under attack by the French Revolution, General Berthier walks into the Holy See, takes the Pope literally from the throne, takes him into exile, and he dies in France, basically completely wiping the feet out from under the papacy's powers. Exactly 1,260 years later, after they were given civil power, that civil power was taken away. Now notice this. That's the time, times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated. So we would expect to see this courtroom judgment scene sometime after 1798, after this time, times, and half a time. Okay? But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So repeatedly we see the same sequence, that there's going to be imperial Rome divided into ten parts Rome, the little horn antichrist papal power Rome, who will have a time, times and half a time, 1,260 years of rule. That will be followed by a judgment in heaven, and then only after that judgment is completed does Christ return to have his kingdom established to bring his reward with him. Daniel chapter 7. What did Daniel chapter uh, think of this, by the way? Verse 28. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice about Daniel chapters 2 and 7 before we get into Daniel chapter 8. Both Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, though they use different symbols, one uses the image, the sequential parts of a statue, the other uses beasts, okay, coming up in their order, but both have some very striking similarities, right? They both outline four kingdoms, the last one having multiple phases to it. They both start with Babylon and end with Jesus' second coming and setting up his eternal kingdom, right? So they're both bookend the same way. It's the same time frame that we're dealing with. So it covers the same territory, just uses different language to explain it. And in Daniel chapter 7, it adds two things that Daniel chapter 2 did not talk about. One, it adds this little horn power. After the ten horns of Rome, it adds this little horn power. And secondly, it adds this judgment scene in heaven. But it concludes with Jesus' return and setting up his kingdom, just as Daniel 2 did. So it gives additional information about the divided phase of Rome, namely that there would be this Antichrist power and that its power would be taken away by the judgment of God. It would be eliminated there. Okay? This is an important sequence to keep in mind as we go to Daniel chapter 8, because you're going to find Daniel chapter 8, though it has some similarities, it has some pretty important differences from the previous two prophetic chapters. So let's now go to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, we'll just start with verse 1. I want to get you familiar with the prophecy. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so notice this is not Nebuchadnezzar on the throne, and that was the same thing, by the way, for Daniel chapter 7. Daniel didn't receive any visions directly that were recorded, at least, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. But 
soon as Belshazzar gets on the throne in Daniel chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, chapter 7 comes along. Then in the third year of Belshazzar, chapter 8, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. It's like not to anybody else, to me directly, after the one that had appeared to me the first time. So which one is he talking about? Daniel chapter 7 was his very first vision, right? So he's now two years later, now he has another one. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was at the Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw the, in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Okay, so he sees beasts again. He's starting to see at least he's got one beast now, right? And he's already had the first vision, and he's interpreted the other one. He's, used, he's probably expecting, okay, we're going to see a sequence here. But notice that this one does not start with Babylon. This one does not start with Babylon. It starts with Medo-Persia. How do we know it's Medo-Persia? Well, before we get to the interpretation, which, by the way, gives the whole thing away, it says that one, that's Medo-Persia. But let me give it to you before we get there, okay? Daniel chapter 2, the representation of Medo-Persia were the chest and arms, right? You have two parts, the arms there. One is more dominant than the other. In my case, it's my left hand. For the rest of you, it's probably your right hand, but whatever. Anyway, in the Daniel chapter 7 vision, the reference for the representation for Medo-Persia was a bear. But what was the bear all about? It was raised up on one side, right? It, had, it was lopsided too. It had a strong side and a weak side. And here in Daniel chapter 8, he starts off the vision not with a representation of Babylon, but with a representation of a kingdom that has two horns or two sub-kingdoms in it, one being stronger than the other, and fascinatingly, the stronger one comes up last. Interestingly, if you go through the book of, of Daniel, Daniel lives through the transition from Babylon to Medo-Persia. He does. And the first kings of Medo-Persia are Medes. But the Persians end up in the long run being a much stronger kingdom, far and away the stronger empire. And as soon as Cyrus gets on the throne, it's Persians ruling Medo-Persia from then on out. In fact, it drops the Medo part afterwards and just becomes the Persian Empire. Right? It starts off as this combination of Medo-Persia, and the Medes get on the throne first. But once the Persians take off, boy, they just go and go and go until a time comes when it's just referred to as Persia. Okay? Now, that's what he opens Daniel 8 with. Verse, nine, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry, of Daniel 8. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward. So he must be coming from the east if he's pushing west, north, and south. So that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hands, but he did according to his will and became, what's that word? Great. Verse 5. And as I was considering, so he's watching this thing, thinking about it, suddenly a male goat came from the where? Now this other one was coming from the east. This one's coming from the west. They're apparently on a collision course. And it describes this next one. Across the surface of the whole earth 
without touching the ground. By the way, if you're, if you're going across the surface of the earth but not touching the ground, what are you doing? You're flying, right? Without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, just like we had a lopsided bear represent Medo-Persia, and here we have a ram with two horns representing Medo-Persia, also we had a flying creature, the, remember the leopard beast with the wings, had multiple, it was, the whole thing was it was flying beast. Here we have a flying beast again coming directly at, on a collision course with the previous beast, which represents Medo-Persia. Now, verse 6, the, Then he came to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confounding the ram. He was moving with rage against him. I'm sorry, confronting the ram. He was moving with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So when the ram, I mean, when the goat comes in, he's not playing around. He's not making deals and treaties. He's coming in quickly, hard, and fast to destroy. Boom. And just levels the ram. Takes off its horns, tramples the rest of the whole thing is done and takes over. Right? And now notice this. Therefore, the male goat grew, now this is important, very what? Notice you're going to see an establishment of a sequence. You have the first one became great. The next one becomes very great. Keep that in mind. Verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he had become strong, the large horn was broken. And in its place, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now this is an interesting thing. This Apparently no beast comes in here and smacks this one, but the notable horn, that first king breaks. And in its place, up spring up four other horns. Now, of course, after Babylon comes Medo-Persia, and after Medo-Persia comes Greece, and that notable horn who so quickly and uh, just massively spread the Greek power around the world, or then the known world, was Alexander the Great. And at a very young age, after he had conquered the known world, he dies. Not in battle, but just in his tent. He dies. And in dying, you can back this up with history, no problem at all, he turns over his kingdom to his four generals. Basically saying, may the strongest win. Well, the problem with that is, they, didn't start, they, they stopped fighting their enemies and started fighting each other, right? Basically, his, death, his deathbed wish ended up being the final limits of his kingdom. They started fighting each other. Now we continue on. And out of one of them came a, what's the next thing? A little horn. Verse 9. Let's make sure we're all together. And out of one of them came a what? Little horn, which grew exceedingly great. Okay? So we have Babylon. I'm not Babylon. I'm sorry, not Babylon. We have Medo-Persia, Greece, and what power would we expect to see next? Rome. And this time he references it, the whole thing, as this Little horn. Little horn. Now, I believe he's emphasizing something by referring to it as a little horn. We've already seen a little horn before. 
And verse 9, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great. So notice we have a, a very clear sequence of great, very great, and now we have exceedingly great, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven. Now notice it's going not just horizontally on the earth, but it has a spiritual component to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled on them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, which of course is Jesus Christ seeming to fulfill exactly what 2 Thessalonians talked about. There's one coming who will sit in the temple of God and make himself God. Daniel sees this and he's, he's confounded. He can't believe it. And by him the daily, again, sacrifices in addition here, were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Interesting, it makes reference to the sanctuary now. This little horn is going to war against because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily. Again, sacrifice is an addition there. But, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily, daily sacrifices, and the transgre- transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary, here's another reference to the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, as we saw in our study the other night, there was only one day of the year when the sanctuary itself got cleansed out, right? It's the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the most holy place and you would have this special ceremony. Yes, there would be a daily sacrifice of a regular animal, like a lamb, right, or ram. But there would also be a goat involved in the service, yes? One for the Lord and one is the scapegoat. So you'd have the daily and you'd have the yearly, and you'd have two animals involved, a lamb or ram and a goat, Interestingly enough, what are the two animals used in this prophecy? A ram and a goat. Now, if you notice Daniel chapter 7, the animals involved were all wild. They're feral, they're ferocious, they're predators, right? You have a lion, then you have a bear and a leopard, and then this terrible, undescript dragon-type beast thing, right? None of them would be clean to eat and certainly wouldn't be clean to use for a sacrifice. But in Daniel chapter 8, he sees a ram, which would be used, particularly be used in the daily service. And then he sees a goat, and a goat is used in the yearly service. And he makes reference to the sanctuary several times, and specifically the cleansing of the sanctuary. Seems to be looking forward to this judgment. Now, this judgment had been introduced in Daniel chapter 7, And now, in Daniel chapter 8, it seems to become more and more the focus. If you recall, in Daniel chapter 7, when Rome was introduced, it was the, of course, in Daniel chapter 2, it was just the iron legs and it divided into ten toes. Daniel chapter 7, it starts as the empire, and then it gets divided into ten, or the beast, you know, with ten horns. And then it has the little horn, 
And the little horn is the one who makes war against the saints and all these kind of terrible things. Here in Daniel chapter 8, it talks about Rome in its entirety as the little horn, focusing on the spiritual aspect that's going to try to trample the the saints of God and bring down low his sanctuary. Interesting. So, let's go to our worksheet now. Now that we've come to the... We haven't gotten to the interpretation yet, okay? But... This will be important. When something is done without human hands, well, in fact, you know what? Let's just do this. Let's just do the interpretation. Let's do that. Let's go to verse 15. By the way, Daniel did not understand what he'd seen. Verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, so he didn't understand it. He was trying to think about it, seeking it out. Suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Who is this man standing there with Daniel? Gabriel. Gabriel was sent to give this man his understanding. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of what? So the purpose of this vision is not to talk about the time of the present, like Babylon, or even the near present, like Medo-Persia and Greece. All of that sets the table for the time of the what? End. He said this vision, the whole purpose, is concerning the time of the end, which is exactly when you would expect the sanctuary to be cleansed, right? This vision refers to the time of the end. Now... So he says that to calm him down, because Daniel's apparently pretty freaked out. Verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there is already an appointed time for the little horn to do its thing, to have its power, to have its time of influence and reign of terror. But, as this one said, for the, at the appointed time, the end shall be, verse 20. He starts breaking down the vision for him. And he does it so much more succinctly and quickly than I did. Look at verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of what? Media and Persia. By the way, remember, he's still living in the time of Babylon. Think of, let this sink in for a minute. He said, by the way, the next kingdom that comes is going to be a combination of the Medes and the Persians, Media and Persia. That's what's going to come next. Well, everyone around here talks about, oh, king, live forever. He's like, trust me, it's not. Daniel's like, I know. I read Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. I know, right? But he names them, Medo-Persia. Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of what? Greece. He's living in Babylon, and he names Medo-Persia and Greece before they happen. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king, which is Alexander the Great. Okay, pretty clear and simple so far. And the broken horn and the four that stood, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. All right, now we've transitioned into Rome, and specifically he's looking at 
papal Rome. Okay? Again, that seems to be the emphasis of Daniel chapter 8. Having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Will this little, this sinister scheming thing have his own power to execute his will? No. He'll be strong, but on the back of other people's power. Right? So it's going to be a church entity, but it's going to use the state of those other nations around it to be its enforcers. Right? He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive and shall destroy the mighty people and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule and he shall exalt himself in his where? Heart. Okay? This is very much like Satan's representative on the earth, right? That's exactly what Satan did. This is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, what the Antichrist will do. will try to think of himself as God. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He destroy, shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, which of course is Jesus Christ himself. But he shall be broken. And now this is key. What is going to finally break this little horn power? It just says he shall be broken without what? Human hands, without hands. Hmm. So if it's going to be, is it going to be a war, an earthly war, a military power that comes in and finally ends this character? No. We've already studied it from Daniel chapter 7 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What finally destroys the little horn power? Christ's coming, right? By the way, anytime you see without human hands, it's always a reference to something in heaven. Always. For instance, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we looked at it. We don't have time to look at it now, but you can look it up later. He says, the point of what we're saying is this, is that we do have such a high priest who serves at the, at the true tabernacle, the one the Lord erected and not man, right? Made without human hands, the Lord set it up. So there's a heavenly sanctuary, a heavenly tabernacle that Jesus serves at, and we know it's heavenly because man didn't make it. It was made without human hands. You see the same thing in Daniel chapter 2. Remember, how was the stone cut out that was going to come in and smash the statue? Without human hands. That means it comes from heaven, comes in. It's not from this earth. It's not of this earth. And apparently the destruction of this little horn power will be the same as that stone that was cut out without human hands. It's not going to be another earthly power that does this thing in. It's going to be a supernatural power, namely the Lord himself. Now, the sanctuary emphasis. We've already talked about this. We don't really need to repeat that. But notice again in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Verse 13, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Verse 14, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And again, we see this. That everything in the sanctuary points forward to Christ and his ministry in some aspect. The lamb, the priest, going into the place you can't see, like heaven, ministering on our behalf, and then finally going into the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary. Every step is a ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus has already come and lived in the camp and lived a sinless life, right? Yes. He has already sacrificed himself on the cross. He's died as our substitute. Yes? The Bible makes it clear that he has arisen into heaven. Amen? 
Okay? He is the priest that all those types pointed to. And it says he had to have something better to offer, namely his own blood. So he takes his blood that he offered and he offers it before the Lord. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Beautiful concept. But that means that if every type has been fulfilled in Christ, that this one last one would all be fulfilled in Christ. That somehow that most holy place, work of day of atonement or the day of judgment, would be fulfilled in Christ. I believe that's what the gospel writer, I mean the, the, the Bible authors, were pointing to. They said there is a day coming when the Lord will judge by his man Jesus Christ every secret thing. And when Jesus returns, when he's done with that, he says, my reward is with me. So there's a very clear sequence in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and now we've seen it in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, of course, does not emphasize Babylon. In fact, it doesn't even mention Babylon. Skims past me to Persia, Greece, and it really doesn't even highlight papal, I mean, uh, imperial Rome or divided Rome. It centers right on the papal aspect of Rome, and specifically, the counter to that, the heavenly judgment the cleansing of the sanctuary that will end his power. Okay? And of course we saw that the scapegoat represents Satan altogether and that that thing will end his power. Now, Daniel chapter 8 ends in a way that uh, is dissatisfying to the reader. If, Gen- if, if all we had was Daniel chapters 1 through 8 we would be sincerely up a creek for interpreting Daniel chapter 8. Because watch what happens now. Because notice we've added one more element now. We've got this 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So we have a time frame to look forward to the beginning of this day of atonement. Verse 26, then the interpretation starts to talk about that 2300 day prophecy. And the vision of the evening and mornings which was told is? Well, of course it's true, right? Is the Lord going to tell him a falsehood? Of course not. He's like, and that, 20, that, that thing about the evenings and mornings, the 2300 days until the sanctuary is cleansed? Yeah, 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 what about that? That's true too. Okay, now, tell me, when, when does it occur? But now look at the next thing. Therefore, seal up the vision. For it refers to many days in the future. That thing about the 2300 days? Yeah, yeah. When does it start? When can I start counting down? When can I? He's like, you know what? Never mind. Just roll it up, seal it up. Don't worry. It's for a long time in the future. No problem. Look at Daniel's response, by the way, to this interpretation. And I, Daniel, what? Fainted. You brought me all the way here, told me there's going to be this great judgment day, this day of atonement, the real thing when Jesus is going to begin that work in heaven. And I know it's at the end of some 2300 day something, but when does it start? How do I know when it's... And you're going to leave me here? I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business, picked himself off his bed. I was like, I guess i got to go back to work. I was astonished by the vision, and this is key, but no one, what, 
Daniel chapter 2, he gets to the end. He's not even missing a heartbeat. He's not missing a pulse at all. He's like, well, no problem. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divides into ten kingdoms. Jesus comes. No problem. Daniel chapter 7, it's very worrisome because he's got this little horn power and it's going to go after the priests, the saints of the Most High and it's going to win for a certain amount of time. But at the end, he's sick about it. But you notice it starts with a starting point where he is and it ends with Jesus coming. At least it's like, all right, I guess the Lord's going to... Notice that there's two things that are different about this one. that are very, very important. Number one, it doesn't begin with Babylon. We'll come back tomorrow night and say why. But it's probably not the reason that you've heard. If you've heard any reason, it's probably wrong. I'm just going to throw that out there. It doesn't begin with Babylon. And it, more importantly, it doesn't end with Jesus coming. It just holds out on this sanctuary being cleansed at the end of the 2300 days. And he has no idea when those begin. And he asks, when will this start? I, I'm so confused about it. And he says, oh, seal it up. It's true, don't worry about it, but it's for a long time from now. Roll it up, seal it, you're done. And Daniel faints. And he admits at the end of this, unlike he has done with Daniel 2 or 7, that no one understood it. Daniel chapter 8 does not end cleanly. It ends in a very frustrating manner. So tonight, I'm going to give you just a tiny, 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 tiny taste of what it must have been like to be Daniel. I'm not going to tell you when the 2300 days commences or when it ends or when that day of judgment begins in heaven. And that's what it'll be like to be Daniel. You can put yourself in his shoes for just a little bit. Of course, we have Daniel chapter 9 that we'll look at tomorrow night, which Daniel didn't have at this point. Okay? But I want you to be clear. The Lord says it's true. What we see here is a recapitulation, recovering the same ground as the previous prophecies, and it brings us right up to this 2,300 days when the sanctuary will be cleansed, and it leaves us hanging. Daniel didn't understand it, and right now you may not understand it, but when we come back tomorrow night, we're going to understand it. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I know that was some heavier stuff, and we're getting deeper, but it starts on that basic framework, and it just adds more detail and more detail every, every time. Has tonight's presentation been clear? at least clear enough to get you confused, right? Because that's the goal, is to clarify it all the way till you're just as confused as Daniel. So we'll come back tomorrow night and get the clarity from it. But before we go, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's challenging. Thank you that it's not just so cut and paste that there's no thought involved whatsoever. Lord, you want us to think. You say, come and let us reason together. So, Lord, we want to know what your word says. As we come back tomorrow night, Lord, give us the understanding that Daniel lacked when he received this vision and help us to see it for ourselves that your word is true, it is trustworthy, and that we have a high priest who's right now cleansing the heavenly sanctuary of sin. Lord, help each one of us to put our trust and our faith in him and to separate ourselves from this world so we'll be ready to go to the next world when your kingdom shall come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.